0: I told you last week that we come to the place where the book of Romans is going to start sounding a little more like a letter, and uh, this week's passage is of that nature. It's about Paul's travel plans. He, He assures the Romans of his intentions to visit them as soon as possible, and then he informs them that first he has to go to Jerusalem to deliver an offering that he's collected for the poor in Jerusalem. Then after that, he plans to... Uh, go to Rome or go to Spain by way of Rome where he'll stop in and visit with the Roman saints before he goes on to Spain to help plant churches there and open up another region to the gospel message. So this is a, a passage while there's some good stuff that we're going to get out of it this morning. It deals mainly with Paul's travel plans and uh, the trip that he has, uh, describes in this passage is a long and dangerous trip. It goes from Corinth, where he wrote this, to Jerusalem, which is 800 miles away. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot. I don't know, 800 miles seems like a lot even with a car. But uh, 800 miles is a long, long way when you don't have a vehicle or an airplane. Or uh, That's a long trip, amen, to Jerusalem. And then from from Jerusalem to Rome... It's about 1,500 miles, so twice as long. And then from Rome to Spain is another 700 miles. It's a a journey of somewhere around 3,000 miles. And in Paul's day and age, that's a tremendous undertaking. It's not a trip that you, uh, you make in a hurry. It's not a trip that you can, you can do without some planning. It's a long, uncomfortable journey. Much of it will be done by boat. And, and if you'll remember the story of Paul being shipwrecked in, in the book of Acts, there's going to be some perilous waters and some dangerous times and even some dangerous places that he's going to have to travel through. But Paul feels like he's in the will of God, and this is the next step. In his journey, so this is where he's going. If you'll stand with me, Romans chapter 15. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. We stopped at verse 21 last time, so we're going to try to conclude uh, chapter 15 this morning, beginning in verse 22. Amen. As you get that, let me re- let me just tell you, as a pastor, how much I love and appreciate each and every one of you. I probably don't tell it enough. I talk called uh, trend in my office this morning told him I probably don't tell you enough but I appreciate what you're doing with the young people I appreciate every person that is here thank you so much for being a part of this church and for doing what you do I, I, it would be absolutely fruitless for me to come and stand behind this pulpit if you weren't here amen mean that is the truth of the matter we are a church thank you so much for honoring that and for being here on a Sunday morning Verse 22 says, for which cause also I had been much hindered from coming to you. But now having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contributions for the poor saints which are in Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed them with this fruit, I will come by you into Spain, and I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints." that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It's a lengthy reading, but I believe we can cover it in just a short amount of time this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this time of fellowship together in the house of God, and this time of study together in the Word of God. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would bless and minister and move, do through your Word, God, what only you can do. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. Verse 22, going back to the very beginning, says, For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you? The for which cause... Clause ties this back to uh, last week's lesson. It takes us back to what we we just talked about last week. Up until this time, Paul has wanted to go to the Romans, but he has been hindered. What has hindered him? The the, the thing that hindered him, we learned last week that Paul felt compelled to by the need to preach first in places where the gospel had not yet been heard. And there's already a church in Rome, but there were plenty of places in between Jerusalem and Rome where there was not a church. And so Paul's first obligation was those other places, those places where the gospel message had not yet been preached and where the church had not yet been fully established. So though he often longed, to go to Rome, which we saw at the beginning of the letter as well, and though he often longed to go fellowship with the church there, his pressing desire for evangelism hindered him. Amen. He had to fulfill the call of God in his life before he could go and do that. Does that make sense? And then verse 23 says, But now, having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you. So the the time has now come. Paul says, I have no more place in these parts. We know what he means by that because of the passage we studied last week. Paul had de- uh, he declared last week that he had set out to spread the gospel in an unchurched region east of Jerusalem. And if you'll remember last week, he said that he feels as if he's fully accomplished that task. He's done it. He has he has done exactly what God called him to do. He's fully established the gospel in that place. The word for for place where he's he says there's no more place in these parts. That word place can also be translated as opportunity. And he has, he's accomplished what he set out to do. Now there's no more opportunity. In that region from east of Jerusalem where he, where he started out to minister and started out to reach those those cities and those areas that were Gentile people but didn't have the church, there's no more opportunity there to, to plant the first work. There's already people there now. He's already done that task. There are churches that are there that are helping uh, evangelize that region, that are helping carry the gospel. And as far as Paul is concerned, his work there is now finished finished. Now that that is done, he is no longer hindered. Amen. Now that that is accomplished, he he can do what he, he can do what his heart's telling him to do. He can follow his great desire that he's had for these many years to go visit Rome, but he, even then he's going to do it on his way to another uncharted territory where the gospel has not been spread. He's not saying, I'm going to take my leisure now and go to Rome, and I'm taking a vacation, if you will. He said, all right, this job is done. There's no more opportunity here, but I can see opportunity in Spain, and so I'm going to go there by by way of Rome. I'm going to take the time to visit Rome. I'm going to take the time to do that, which I have felt in my heart to do, but it's on my way to Spain. Now, Spain was growing in significance as a cultural and commercial area in the Roman Empire. It was a growing area, and it was a Gentile area, and that's probably why Paul saw it as the next logical step in his plan to evangelize those who had not heard. He would go to Spain, and he would preach the gospel. Amen to those who had not yet heard the gospel. So Spain was the goal, but Rome was to be the layover. Where Paul would be refreshed and encouraged on his journey, this three thousand mile trip, he would finally arrive at Rome and then and then or, or, sorry, half he, he still has eight hundred miles to travel when he gets to Rome, and that's a good place to stop and, and rest and be refreshed and enjoy the fellowship with the people of God before he goes on to Spain. Amen. Verse twenty-four says, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you. If first I must, if first I'd be somewhat filled with your company. So even though Paul has long desired to go to Rome, he's not just going there to satisfy that desire. He's going to Rome on his way to Spain. And and so we see, and I've said it several times already this morning, Paul's intense missionary zeal. He's he's fulfilling the call of God on his life. And even this trip, which he's wanted to take for years and years, has to fit within the greater calling of God for his life. Amen. He's not going to Rome just because he wants to go to Rome, but he's in the process of fulfilling God's calling for his life. And Rome is by chance, and, and a good chance, on the way to where he's supposed to be be going. Does that make sense? And so he sees everything in his life as fitting within the calling that God has placed on him. And he, he's not going to Rome for personal pleasure. Instead, it's a pit stop on a longer journey to Spain. But that pit stop will be personally fulfilling for Paul. He says in this text that he hopes to be, in the last portion of that verse, somewhat filled with your company. The word used there literally means to be filled full in the context of a hungry person eating a meal. So Paul is saying that he will be filled full with the pleasure of the fellowship of the saints in Rome. Now, that's not a small matter. This is something special. There's something irreplaceable about the fellowship of the people of God. There's something about coming together with people of like precious faith and being encouraged together and and worshiping the Lord together that you can't get anywhere else. I say this often, but it's kin to what Paul is saying here. I go to church For the preaching, because I need to hear good preaching. Amen. I go to church for the corporate worship because I need to worship God and I need to do it in the fellowship of believers. And both of those things feed my spiritual man. And both of those things are very important to me. But I also go to church because I need the fellowship of the people of God. I need the encouragement that comes from being around people like me who are facing the same battles I'm facing, who are facing the same struggles I'm up against, who are are, are contending against the same spirits that I'm contending with, and I get something in my spirit from being in fellowship with those of like, precious faith that I can't get anywhere else. Paul described it as being like food for a starving man. I'm filled with your company. It satisfies something deep within me. It refreshes me. It encourages me. It gives me strength for my journey. That's what I get from being in the fellowship of the people of God. And that's what Paul is saying here. Just to visit the church in Rome will be refreshing. It will be encouraging. It will be spiritually strengthening for Paul. Like a hungry man, he's going to feast on the fellowship of the people of God. And when he leaves Rome, he's going to leave there fully satisfied. Amen. You know how you feel when you walk away from Thanksgiving dinner? Most times I feel like I need to go repent, repent somewhere for the sin of gluttony. Amen. But that, that full satisfied, couldn't take another bite if I wanted to, that's the, the thing that's being conveyed here. Paul saying, when I, when I come and visit and I, and I spend the time with you, when I leave there, I'm going to be fully satisfied. I will have been filled with your company. He also hopes to, in the, in the phrase prior to that, be brought on my way thitherward by you. First of all, let's deal with the Shakespearean English thitherward has the same meaning as the word thither. Now, that got you real far, didn't it? Used it in a phrase similar to this. You may say that someone is running hither and thither. The word thither has to do with being towards that place or in that direction. It's a directional statement. It's a It's a statement of action, of moving from one place to another. And what Paul means in using, and he didn't use the word, the other word, that's an old English word. He used a Greek word, but the word that he uses uh, conveys the idea that he expects that when he's in Rome, the church in Rome is going to be beneficial to him for his missionary journey. Perhaps he means that they will equip him for it. Perhaps he means that he thinks that they may give him a financial blessing to help finance it or, or that they're going to give him material goods that will help him on the trip. But in some way, he feels like that by visiting the church in Rome, they're going to move him closer. To his goal. They're going to move him thither. They're going to help him tr- t- begin to g- step in that right direction. Uh, maybe he just means that uh, he thinks that they may send men with him to help him. Amen. You Going into a region like Spain, going all by yourself to spread the gospel, it's helpful to have some men that will come along with you and, and labor with you and minister with you and reach the lost with you. And so maybe that's what he feels like is going to happen. But something's going to happen there in Rome, he believes, that will advance his cause, that will move him thitherward. I just wanted to use that word one more time. You're likely not to hear it again for a whole year. Amen. Verse 25 says, but now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. So Paul tells the Romans all this about coming to Rome, on his way to Spain, but he says that before he can go to Rome, there's another journey that he has to take. He has a specific task that he must accomplish. He needs to go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints there. And as this text unfolds, we're going to see that Paul is in possession of a financial offering that has been collected to bless the poor in the church at Jerusalem. And Paul wants to personally deliver that offering to them. And so here we see Paul saying, I have to go to Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. That word minister is not used in the sense of preaching as in I'm ministering to you, but it's used in the sense of serving or waiting on someone, the same way that the waiter in the restaurant ministers to you. Amen. So what Paul is saying, we see the servant heart of the missionary, of the minister of God. He's saying, I, I'm going to Jerusalem to help them, to serve them, to be a servant to them. So before I can go to Rome, I must First, go to Jerusalem to minister to the needy in the church there. Verse 26 says, For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. So Paul has collected a financial contribution from the Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia, and he intends to hand deliver that Offering to the poor saints in Rome. Now, those two regions that Paul mentioned, uh, Macedonia and Achaia, are the northern portion of Greece, and they include towns like Thessalonica, Philippi, Athens. And, Corinth. and if you're familiar at all with the Acts record of, of Paul's missionary trips and, and, and the letters that he wrote, these are places where Paul planted churches. And so this region had been the focus of Paul's most recent missionary journey. That's where he's been laboring. That's where he's been fulfilling his calling. That's where he's been making it so that there's no more opportunity for him to minister. And, and he says that while he was there, it pleased those people that he reached with the gospel and those churches they established to make certain contributions to the poor in Jerusalem. So these new converts, this newly established church in, in in Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth and Galatia is another community that was in that that trip. These new converts are 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 there they're excited, they're delighted, they're well pleased to be able to help. The church in Jerusalem. That's something that they're glad to participate in. What Paul is telling us is that, and he uses the word pleased on purpose, he's telling us this is a love offering. This is not a begrudging fulfillment of an obligation to, to help brothers and sisters in need. This is a strong, heartfelt, compassionate outpouring of love for their brothers and sisters in the Lord they gave this offering Paul said with pleasure indeed the word is used to the word that's used to describe the offering literally translates as I know it says contribution but it literally translates as fellowship or participation or sharing in in other words what Paul said is with pleasure they decided to share the burden that belonged to the saints in Jerusalem. Their, their offering was their way of coming into fellowship with the suffering of the church in Jerusalem, standing alongside of them and, and sharing the burden that they were carrying. Jerusalem's the home church. That's the place where it all begins. That's the place where it all started. And the thing about the church in Jerusalem is that it is predominantly a Jewish church. And the church there has fallen on hard times. And there are many needy in that church. And there are many poor in that church. And we're not just talking about they don't have the nice stuff. We're talking about they don't have food and bread. Amen. There are people there who, who are in the and water. They don't have the necessities of life. They're in dire straits that is presented that that history is presented to us more than once in the record of scripture and we know of more than one occasion at least two occasions that Paul raised an offering to bring back to Jerusalem for the church at Jerusalem but what is unique here is not just that these new churches Would freely give of their finances to help carry the burden for the global church, for a church in in Jerusalem, they would probably never, ever go and be a part of. They'll probably never see those people. They're probably never going to know them by name, but they're willing to go ahead and and it's kind of the same way you give a missions pledge and and you're willing to bless a ministry on the other side of the world and you don't even, you're probably never going to go to Chile. You're probably never going to stand on on the shores of Taiwan. You're probably never going going to walk down the streets in Japan or Russia, but we send missionaries there and we help provide for them and we help pay their way and we we give them a monthly offering. And our monthly offering isn't that much, but our monthly offering combined with the church down the road and the church past them and, and the others in our section and the rest in our state and across the nation, we provide them a living so that they can go and reach the go- reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they, this, this New Testament newborn church has that same passion. They're going to minister to the church in Jerusalem that they may never be a part of. They may never see that, but they're going to reach out to them anyway and bless them. But even more important than that, these are Gentiles who are freely giving to Jews in their time of need. For years and years, the Jews have rejected the Gentile people. And there is plenty of bad blood between Jews and Gentiles, between the two ethnic groups. But this is what we see. None of the cultural realities of the struggle that exists between Jews and Gentiles in the first century, those cultural realities don't intrude on the fellowship of the cross. They have no place in the brotherhood of the church. This is not a matter of Gentile believers helping Jewish believers. No, it is a matter of Christians helping Christians. Amen. It's a matter of people who have been washed in the blood of Jesus and called by the name of Jesus, caring about people who have been washed in the blood of Jesus and called by the name of Jesus. And the beauty of this offering is that it demonstrates that while ethnic issues may belong to the culture and while there may be ethnic issues in the culture, they should have no impact on the church. Amen. We're living in a day and age when our own country has been torn apart along racial lines. There's more division and hatred today than there's ever been in my lifetime. However, all of that business has no place in the house of God. In this house, we're not black and white. We are blood-bought. Jesus' name. Apostolic. Holy Ghost-filled Christians, and we worship together, amen? We come together in unity, and the ties that bind us together as a church are stronger than the things that divide us in our culture, amen? That's the triumphant power of the church. Verse 27 says, it hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. So he starts by telling us, yes, it's pleased the Gentiles. They've done this freely. They've done this out of love. They've not done this out of obligation. I haven't gone and told them you have to do this. Uh, They've done this because they wanted to do this. But then he makes another statement. He says that from Paul's viewpoint, even though they've done this freely, It is the repayment of a moral debt. The Gentile church owes the mother church in Jerusalem a debt they'll never repay. Those Gentiles received the wonderful gift of salvation only because the church in Jerusalem has spread the gospel far and wide. And so he said, they don't see it as an obligation. They see it as something to do and I love, and that's exactly what it is. But but Paul said, I recognize that if I hadn't have been able to come to them, if I hadn't been able to preach to them, they wouldn't be in the church in the first place. And the only way I would was able to come and preach to them is that I was sent out from that Jerusalem church. Amen. There's a there's a moral obligation there, there's a, a moral death there. He said that they, they become partakings uh, are partakers of the spiritual blessings that belong to that Jerusalem church. They they've been made partakers of their the Jerusalem church's spiritual things they received salvation because they sent out missionaries he said then it is their duty also to minister to that Jerusalem church in carnal things so i have received their spiritual blessings i've been blessed by the, the ministry of that church it is it is then it is then uh, uh, the burden is upon me to help carry the needs to help carry the burden, to help where I can finance it, and help where I can bless it, amen, because when they're in need of carnal blessings, amen, you can't ever repay the spiritual blessings you receive, amen? Uh, Finances and money and help and all that, that stuff is never going to take the place of this. It will never amount to the spiritual blessing that you receive. But having received a spiritual blessing, amen, when there's a a carnal thing that needs to be done, when there's there's a a need that needs to be met, amen, Paul's saying, I can see it as your obligation to go do that, to do what you can, amen. You can send a million-dollar offering, and it's never going to repay the spiritual blessing. But that's not the point. The point is I've been blessed, and so I'm going to bless like I've been blessed. Remember, I'm going to love like I've been loved. I'm going to show mercy like I've received mercy. I'm going to bless like I've been blessed. Amen. You you are blessed to be a part of a church. You're blessed to be among the fellowship of the people of God. You're blessed to be among in a place where you can grow spiritually and where you can be blessed spiritually. Amen. And, and you'll never be able to repay those spiritual blessings, but you can help carry the load. Amen. You can give of your finances to help make sure the church stays running efficiently. Amen. Make sure pastor doesn't lose sleep at night. Amen. I know a little bit about losing sleep at night. Amen. You help carry the burden, and that matters. Verse 28 said, When therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. So here Paul introduces a participle phrase that has some have struggled to understand. Paul is going to personally deliver this offering to Jerusalem and he describes that act as sealing to them this fruit. It's the seal language that people have trouble with. Uh, to place one's seal upon something means to put one's unique identifying mark upon it in order to guarantee, it's authentic, authenticity, get that right. To You put your seal on it, you're guaranteeing that it's authentic, it's real, amen, and it is an ownership thing. Some have surmised that Paul might mean that he wanted to personally deliver the offering to Jerusalem so that he could personally guarantee the Gentile churches that it has arrived there at its intended destination, that he can put a seal on it and say, all right, it's done. However, it seems more likely that he saw this offering as a chance to strengthen the relationship between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. So he wanted to personally deliver the offering to Jerusalem so that he could attest to the fact that this is a love offering. This is an obligation. They've done this because they love you. This is an outpouring of support from the Gentile church to the Jews in Jerusalem. And Paul believes that he can put his seal on that and he can go in and he can make it authentic. What they have done is, 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 comes from a heart of love. It doesn't come from obligation. So it helps, it helps repair the relationship. Does that make sense? It helps bring them together. That seems to be consistent with Paul's ministry at large. Paul will not be free to go to Rome until he's first gone to Jerusalem and he has fulfilled this obligation to help bring the Jewish and the Gentile people together. Bring this offering and tell them in Jerusalem where it come from and how it came about. Amen? Amen. Verse 29 says, And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessings of the gospel of Christ. So Paul's journey to Rome may be delayed by this detour to Jerusalem, but he is confident that when he does come to Rome, he's going to come in the fullness of divine blessing and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this is an interesting statement because we know looking back on events, that Paul did not arrive in Rome according to his plans. All of these plans that Paul has made, they all get sidetracked. When Paul finally makes it to Rome, he's a prisoner. He's in the, he's in the custody of the Roman military. Yet the truth still stands. That even as a prisoner of Rome, Paul came to Rome in the fullness of the blessings of God to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what he said, I'm sure is going to happen, that actually came to pass. It just didn't come to pass the way he thought it would. Sometimes things don't go the way we think they're going to go. Amen. Verse 30 says, now I beseech you, brethren. For the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So now Paul asks for prayer. Indeed, he knows that nothing about his well-laid plans is certain and settled and that his life and his plans are subject to the greater purpose of God. So no doubt he, he doesn't realize yet what's about to happen. He doesn't realize yet that he's headed for prison chains. He will realize that before he gets to Jerusalem because on the journey to Jerusalem, certain prophets of God are going to reveal to him that if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to chains. And so he's going to realize this before he gets to Jerusalem, but not now when he's writing this letter. He probably hasn't reached that place. He's probably still in Corinth, and he probably hasn't come to that understanding yet. But this is what he's saying. No matter what happens, I want you just to pray for me that I'll be able to fulfill the will of God for my life. I I know that the path that I've set for my life is is not settled. It, it, anything can happen tomorrow. The whole world may change. But but I understand that if I've got somebody praying for me, if I've got somebody calling my name before the throne of God, if I've got somebody that's, that's constantly lifting me up in prayer, that I'll walk in the divine blessings of God, uh, amen, that's going to see me through. That's going to carry me through. So we see here that Paul valued prayer. He beseeches The church or pleads with them. Strive together with me in prayer. Amen. Paul puts a large value on prayer. He doesn't know what tomorrow is going to hold. He doesn't know that he's headed for chains, but he knows that if somebody's praying for him, it's going to be all right. Amen. Does that mean he's not going to have to go to prison? No, that's not what it means. Does that mean he's not going to be shipwrecked? No, that's not what it means. It just means that he's going to be okay. Amen. He's going to come through it if somebody's praying for him. Paul can't anticipate the change of plans that's about to be forced on him, but he recognizes the value of prayer and the ability of God to guide him to the correct path no matter what happens next in this journey. So Paul truly believed that the prayers of others could make a crucial difference in his life and his ministry. So Paul, this great man of faith, this this man who wrote the majority of the books in the New Testament, this man that we look at and put on a paragon, a, a pillar, and call him a paragon of faith, amen. That man said, "I value the prayers of people whose name we'll never know. It mattered to him. That's how important prayer is, amen." You may think that nobody knows your name, but if you know how to pray, you're making a difference. You pray for pastor, pastor greatly, greatly appreciates it. It's your prayers that keep me going on those sleepless nights. Amen. It's your prayers that sustain me. It's that—that's what keeps me in—in uh, in the fight and in the battle. That's what lifts me up, and that's the same thing that happens for you because I pray for you, Amen. And and others pray for you. And when you're struggling, when you're down and you're out and you don't know what to do, Amen. You don't know where your help's coming from. God meets you right in the middle of your situation. And sometimes it's not because somebody called you. It's not because somebody reached out. It's just because God steps in. And all of a sudden, let me tell you why that happens. It's because somebody's calling your name in prayer. It's because somebody's lifting you up before the throne. It's because prayer is important. It matters. So Paul appeals to them, pray for me. He says it this way, for the love of the spirit, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the spirit. That phrase, the love of the spirit, appears in the genitive case in the Greek, and I know that doesn't mean anything to you at all. But the unique thing about the genitive case is that it's always translated in a prepositional phrase. uh, And that it can have more than one meaning. For instance, the classic example that's used when teaching the genitive phrase is the phrase, the love of God. There are two words in the Greek. There's love and God. And God's in the genitive. There is no of. We use the of in the English to translate the genitive. It means love of God. Well, then what does love of God mean? Well, you see, love of God can mean two things. Love of God can mean God's love for us, right? When I say love of God, I can be talking about the fact that God loves us. But it can also mean my love for God. When I say love of God, it can mean that I love God. So it has a twofold meaning, and, and there's no clear way to delineate which one is intended. It's, it's just that by context, often, we can tell which one is meant. But there are some places in Scripture we really don't know for sure, uh, and maybe that was intended in the, in the actual writing of the Greek language, to leave it ambiguous that way, because it means both things. In this case, uh, the love of the Spirit can mean our love for the Spirit, or our love for the indwelling Christ in our lives. But it can also mean the love that the Spirit conveys to us. The love for one another that we have because we're Holy Ghost filled. Amen. You see, this is how they know that we're his church, by our love one for another. And so it can and that phrase, for the love of the Spirit, can convey the idea that it's for the love that the Spirit has placed in your heart. The love that the Holy Ghost generates in you. And that second meaning is probably the more accurate way to translate that particular genitive phrase. Paul is appealing to them to pray for him on the basis of brotherly love. For the love that God's placed in your heart. For me. Amen. I love you and you love me and God's done that. And the Holy Ghost works in life and it manifests itself in love. So on the basis of that love, I'm asking you, pray for me. Amen. You're more likely to pray for somebody you love, aren't you? And so he appeals to the love that we have one for another. Verse 31 says that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. And that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints. So now we get to his prayer request, and he has three requests. The first two are in this verse. First, he wants to be delivered from the Jewish unbelievers in Judea. And secondly, he wants to be accepted by the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So both of these prayer requests have to do with how he's going to be received when he gets back to Jerusalem. This is really interesting because like I said, Paul probably hasn't yet been notified that he's coming into trouble. The Holy Ghost is going to do that for him very shortly. Before he ever gets to Jerusalem, he's going to know that he's walking into trouble. But this stage, he he knows enough about the trouble that is brewing. He knows enough about what's going on in, in Jerusalem that he needs to say, I want you to pray for me that I'll be delivered from the unbelieving Jews and then I will find favor among the believing Jews. See, Paul is not a popular figure among Jewish Christians. Some of them are offended, however wrong they may be, that Paul has preached the gospel to the Gentiles. There are those that have their doubts about Paul, believing that he has abandoned Jewish custom and tradition and has adapted the gospel to the Gentiles in a very liberal sense, and they don't like him at all. And they have an intense hatred in their heart for him. And they will even try to kill him. That's their plan. And there are others there that, that understand that Paul's operating in the Holy Ghost. What he's doing is is the call of God on his life. And and so Paul is saying, when I get to Jerusalem, pray that I'll be delivered from those that hate me. And that I'll find favor with those that love me. Amen. As a matter of fact, we see in those prayer requests the issue that was boiling Just below the surface. This is what will derail Paul's plans. This is what is going to change the course of the plan that he's so carefully laid out here. He wants to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome and then to Spain. But when Paul gets to Jerusalem, the Jewish church leader is going to ask him to appease the Judaizers by going to the temple and taking a Jewish vow. And Paul is going to agree to do that in, the, in an effort to get peace in between those that are against him and those that are for him. And so when he goes to the temple to fulfill that vow, the enemies of Paul are going to go to that temple and they start a riot. And their intention is to kill him in the midst of the riot. And Paul was rescued from that riot How? By a cohort of Roman soldiers. That's how Paul becomes a prisoner of Rome. That's how he becomes the prisoner that eventually ends up in Rome and eventually gets killed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was in the the salvation of God, delivering him from the fulfillment of this very prayer request, that he would find favor and that he would be delivered from those that had sought him harm. But the way that God brought it about was a way that Paul never would have imagined. He brought in a Roman cohort. A Roman soldier came in and saved him. And he, Paul was able, because Paul is a Roman citizen as well as a Jew, and he's able to claim that Roman citizenship and claim that he has a right to an audience in Rome. And so they take him into custody. And they're going to take him to Rome. So that's how he arrives in Rome in shackles instead of as a traveling missionary. Amen. Verse 32 says that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may with you be refreshed. So his third prayer request is that he might come to Rome with joy in the will of God and find refreshing there. The thing to notice here is that Paul subjects all of his plans to the will of God. That I will come to you. If it's the will of God, that I'll come to you in joy, if it's the will of God. Say, that, you know, the, the, the old saying, don't, don't say, I'm going to go here, I'm going to do that, or i I'm say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to go here, and I'm going to do that. That's the way Paul approached his life, amen? If it's the will of God, I'm coming to you. If it's the will of God, pray that if it's the will of God, I'll, I'll arrive in joy. That's the way we should approach our lives, amen? Every plan I make, make huge plans. Set lofty goals, uh, reach for the stars, but make sure that everything in your life is subject to the will of God. Amen. Make sure that you're sensitive to the direction of God. That's why it's so important that you come to church so you can hear the voice of God speaking to you in the fellowship of the people of God and helping steer you on your course. Amen. That's the way we should approach our lives. Paul's prayers were answered, just not the way he expected. God did deliver him from the Jewish unbelievers. He did gain favor with the Jewish Christians. And he did make it to Rome. However, in the process of answering all those prayers, the will of God led him to become a prisoner of the Roman military. Ultimately, God's will was accomplished in Paul's life. He made that 1,500-mile journey to Rome, and it was financed. Entirely by the Roman government. Think about it. Where well, one might see that as a hardship, another might see that as a blessing. God, in his sovereign will, moved Paul exactly where he wanted him to be, and he used the Roman government to do it. He, he saved him from those that would have taken his life, and he let them pay for the journey. They had to feed and clothe him. And, of course, we know that during the shipwreck, he watches over them spiritually, and he, he gives the word and says, there's an angel stood by me this night. Amen. And, and, and it has reassured me that if we stay with the ship, we won't lose a single man. So he becomes a spiritual guide to them too. But, but they take care of him and deliver him to Rome. Now, the God of peace, verse 33, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul concludes this chapter with a prayer for the church in Rome. After having requested prayer from them, he follows up by praying for them. And he prays that the God of peace will be with them. While it's obvious that he's praying for the peace of the church in Rome, He's also asking for a manifest presence of God in the church at Rome. May God be with you is another way of saying may he continually be present wherever you find yourself. In other words, he's praying that they will have peace regardless of the circumstances they may find themselves in. You see, the Acts record doesn't tell us whether Paul ever made it to Spain or not. Scholars believe, and in, in evidence, historical evidence shows that after being in Rome for some time as a prisoner, he was set free. He had some time, maybe a few years of liberty there before he was re-imprisoned and then ultimately killed. And some believe that during that span of time, he went to Spain. And he had the chance to minister there as he projected that he wanted to do here. We don't know for sure. It's not recorded in the biblical record, what happened during that time? But either way, we know that Paul walked in the will of God. And the will of God took him places sometimes he didn't understand. But God preserved him. God took care of him. Amen. And he had that peaceful presence of God in his life. So in the final verse of chapter 15, said at the beginning of the year we were going to get done this year, and we got one chapter left. Amen. It's a miracle. I still believe in miracles. This unique phrase, may the God of peace be with you. That's a reference to the presence of God, but it's also a reference to the reconciliation with God. Unbelievers are not at peace with God. Whenever your heart's messed up and you're wrong and you know you're wrong, there's no peace in the presence of God. There's only conviction there. Amen. There's only judgment there. There's only condemnation there. Would you stand with me? So when you come into the house of God and the presence of God and and your heart's not right with God, you don't have peace with God. Amen. Anybody know that feeling? We've all felt that. But whenever you're reconciled with God, when you come to that place of salvation, God brings you into A right standing with Him. He sets your heart at peace. They tell me that the Old Testament word Shekinah, you know what I mean? Shekinah is the glory of God. That's what it is. They tell me the Hebrew word there means terror. Now that seems kind of odd. That the glory of God would be described as terror. There's a reason for that. Because to those that are in right relationship with God, the glory of God is a very peaceful, blessing thing. But for those that are not in right relationship with God, the glory of God is a terrifying thing. It's a place of, of judgment. It's a place of condemnation. It's a place of guilt. They're not at peace in their heart. What Paul said in in his prayers, uh, kind of a twofold manner. First of all, it's a reference to salvation. May the peace of God be with you. May you find yourself in right standing with God. Whenever there's trouble and turmoil on every side, may there be peace in your heart that you know I'm right with God. I'm right where God wants me to be. I'm doing what God's called me to do, and nothing in this world can change that. And then secondly, it's a reminder of where our peace is comes from we have peace not just because all is well in our lives we have peace because we're in right standing with God amen the peace that's why the scripture is so adamant that the situations of my world my life can't change the peace that I have in God because my peace doesn't come from my bank account my peace doesn't come from my job my peace doesn't come from my personal health. My peace doesn't come from my own well being. All of those things are sources of peace in this world. But that's not where my peace comes from. My peace comes from the presence of God in my life. It comes from being in right standing with God, it comes from being in right relationship with God. That's where my peace is. So you can take away from me my finances. You can take away my my nice home and all my vehicles and all my toys. You can rob me of all the nice things in life. You can put me in shackles and put me in a prison somewhere and feed me bread and water until I'm skin and bones. But even in that place, I can have peace. Because my peace comes from my relationship with my Master. And nothing that anybody else does will ever separate me from him. Paul was very adamant, neither height nor depth. Nothing in this world, a very long list that he gives of things that cannot separate you from the love of God, right down to angels and demons, they don't have the power either. Nothing in this world can separate you from the love of God. Amen. I just feel that, I felt it just a moment ago, the presence of God just flow into this room. I want to ask you if you just lift your hands right now. I feel like the peace of God wants to minister in this house. Would you just allow the, that, that communion with the Spirit of God to take place for a few moments? It'd be a good time just to let some things go. It'd be a good time just to turn some things over and say, Lord, I I I may not have peace about my situation, but I've got peace about my relationship with you, and that is enough. Paul's going to travel all the way to Rome as a prisoner. I doubt that there's ever going to be a place where he has peace with his circumstances. But he's going to have peace in his relationship with God, and that is enough. That will sustain him. That will keep him. Would you just call on the name of Jesus and let the Holy Ghost flow through this place right now?